There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. It is still June. It is still Pride Month. How you doing, Sadie? I am doing fantastic. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, my name is Gavriel Hakoen, and as you all know, I am here with my uh, co-host and BFF, Sadie Carpenter. And this is what well, this is the third episode um, that we're doing for Pride Month, um, and this is. Do you want, Sadie? Do you want to talk about what it is? Because the first episode, I thought we we had a lot of fun talking about like queer history, um, history of pride, stuff like that. This might be a little bit less uplifting. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that we've all noticed the latest rash of allegations against the LGBT community that we want to groom children and that even being exposed to the existence of LGBT people is somehow sexual abuse of children. 
We've all heard the latest blatant fear-mongering about what really goes on in elementary schools. This libel against LGBT teachers and liberals and LGBT-accepting people at large. They say that we want to sexualize children, that liberals and LGBT people and those who accept them are all pedophiles who want to gain the trust of children by talking about the existence of trans people. Which will then allow them to sexually abuse those children and um, even the fact that their belief that talking about LGBT issues is a form of sexual abuse in itself. I wanted to know where this is coming from, because I think from an outside perspective, it can see like this narrative. It can seem like this narrative just turned on a dime and got way more toxic than it was even just a couple of years ago. So today we're going to dig into these allegations. We're going to talk about where they came from and the history behind them. See if we can demystify that a little bit, which might help us understand how we can dispel these myths. What to do if you are in a one-on-one conversation with someone who is willing to deconstruct these myths but doesn't know where to start? Yeah, I know that like a lot of our audience, um, not all, but a lot of our audience is Mm ex-fundamentalists. And a lot like uh, we know from our uh, uh, from our analytics that a very large per- that a, like a much larger than the general population like percentage of our listenership is in some way a part of the LGBTQ community like i think something like 3 or 4% of our audience is non-binary which is ve- which is very high considering um i can't I mean, remember what, what-, what the statistic was that you looked up of non-binary people in general in the United States, but I know that our numbers are disproportionately high. Yeah, so which is I mean, great. Love you, non-binary friends. Makes us think, you know. I know that like a lot of people who listen to this show, you like must have friends or, or people you grew up with or family members that believe a lot of this stuff, and it's got to hurt when you know mm-hmm. people who you who who you know love you used to depend on or maybe you still do depend on or, or whose love you really want believe just the worst of the worst about you and one thing that we we consistently don't do is we don't shame people for having had toxic beliefs in the past. No. If we did, I wouldn't be able to co-host this show because I had a lot of toxic beliefs in the past. And we don't shame people for having toxic beliefs in the present if they are not willing to harm anyone for those beliefs and if they are the slightest bit open to changing them. And I know that we have listeners who disagree with us on fundamental things that I believe. And I like abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I don't believe in shaming those people as long as the big one being that they are, they are not willing to harm somebody else over that belief. And if they are open to hearing a different perspective. So I, so hopefully this episode can help people who are having conversations with that kind of people. Yeah. Oh, I do need to blanket trigger warning for this episode. Of course, it, I think it's obvious we're going to be discussing homophobia and child sexual abuse. If it comes up that we're going to be reading any quotes that are exceptionally heinous or anything like that, I'll let you know before we do. But I think the way we have it outlined, it should be pretty general and clinical. 
Yeah, this should be a good episode, uh, really just getting into the meat of this issue, um, because this is a serious issue. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, also known as the IFB, the cult in which that she was raised. So we talk about this cult, we talk about other cults. Um, including IBLP, uh, you know, Quiverful, that sort of thing. Uh, re- we talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there's a bunch of things that you can do. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can go to our Facebook group, which is Facebook group facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus we also have a subreddit which is reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus other thing that you can do um as it is pride month still for another two weeks or so you we have pride merchandise available special pride merchandise available we have just our regular leaving eden podcast pride logo which is fun but we also have uh you know the king james bible which uh was was a a fun pun that dinah came up with that one right yes we were almost there on the design ideas and then dinah just put us right over right right exactly where we needed to be with that one yeah anyway i we we wanted to do uh i i know sadie is adamant about bi pride so we had to do a bi pride uh colors you know bisexual uh, people take (laughs) we take we take a lot of man (laughs) Yeah, we deserve well, to celebrate a little bit. You, des- you do deserve to celebrate. I, I, um, you know, it, it, it's good. And we also have, um, we, we also have another one, which is from, uh, uh, which is a couple of Bible verses about, uh, about, about David and Jonathan that could be read a certain way. Um, we're not saying that they are. We're we're just saying, you know, maybe take a we're look at this. Just saying that people should read these scripture verses. Yeah. It's biblical. It it is biblical. Um you and it's check. in the King James Version. Yeah, King James so it is kosher. Right. <laughs> no, it's, not, <laughs> uh, it's kosher if you're fundy. Um you know, it's not the worst <laughs> King James verse we could have printed on a t shirt. <laughs> no, it's ugh, no. <laughs> I know uh, your favorite verse in the King James is significantly worse. Yeah. So that's it, except for that we have to thank our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. You guys, you know, all of our patrons, you guys are really the ones that make this show possible. But our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, especially, they're the ones that go the extra mile. I love to thank you guys. I loved uh, I loved uh, having the hangout with you guys a couple weeks ago that we had. That was super fun. Um, but your guys' names are Alex Todd, Brittany, Brooke Tolly. Carrie R, Crystal Patterson, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Hope Norum, Jen Kacharski, Jessica Tambo, Kay Terwee, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Lorena Watson, Michaela, Madeline Cusick, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Rachel Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, uh, Reverend Robert Stutz, thank you so much, Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, Taylor, Tiffany, Victoria, and finally, Wes the Cowboy. 
Thank you so much, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much to all of our patrons and a special thank you to our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. And thank you to everyone who sent us pride stories. We are going to read those on air at the Leaving in Drag Brunch next week uh, with Dinah Housefire to finish off this Pride Month in the only way we know how. Yes, uh, on on a positive note. Today is going to be kind of maybe not so positive, but, you know, important because it can't all just be fun and rainbows and parades. Uh, There's real pain here and there's real history. So, Sadie, do you want to take us through this? So, Sadie, correct me if I'm wrong. I think, like, from from my observations, uh, one of the beliefs that I have seen be sort of central to the hate that LGBT people get is that the hate is almost like a form of compassion because they believe the they believe rather than it being an identity, it's an affliction. That's that's fairly accurate. And I can tell you this is so toxic to experience in person. So for people who weren't raised like this, I want to kind of run you through the the twisted logic of how they see hatred as compassion. So people who so people who are evangelical Christians and hateful of LGBT people, they believe that being queer or trans or anything other than a cis straight person who is happy to conform very strictly to traditional ideas of manhood and womanhood is a sin. So the more compassionate people that believe this would say it's a sin that you're born with. You might see the phrase besetting sin thrown around. That means a sin that you're naturally inclined to do, and it's your duty to overcome it. These type of people might also believe that this sin can become something that you're inclined to because you're hurt or abused as a child, which we're going to talk about in depth later on. The less compassionate people who believe that hatred can be almost a good thing or almost a compassionate thing would say that this is a sin that you choose. It can be like an addiction. And usually the narrative of these less compassionate people is that you have done all the other sins. You don't get a, a thrill or a buzz out of regular straight sexual immorality anymore. You don't get a thrill out of drinking or drugs, so you turn to the worst sin that there is so you can get your sin fix. Mm. <laughs> you. I, I know. that That is just a lot. It's also kind of telling on themselves, right? Where they think, oh man, straight sex just isn't good enough. I need some of that sweet, sweet gay sex. You know, like... <laughs> And why they think that that people get a perverse thrill out of doing something that they believe to be wrong. I know like when I if I do something that I believe is wrong, I don't feel good about that. I don't like I actively I actively avoid doing things that I believe are wrong. Like like I believe that it's it's wrong to snap at my husband or say something cruel to him because I'm in a bad mood or like take out my my bad moods on him in an inappropriate manner just like it's wrong for him to do that to me. So I I really really put in a lot of effort to not do that because I don't feel good when I do it. Like I don't get a sin buzz off of that. Like I believe it's morally wrong to yeah. drink and drive. 
because that puts other people in danger. I believe that is an immoral thing to do. So I actively do not do that because if I did, I know that I would feel so terrible, regardless of whether I actually hurt anyone or not. So I, I feel like this this whole sin uh, sin thrill or sin buzz idea is flawed to begin with. I don't know. Maybe they're like telling everyone like what their kinks are you know what i'm saying yeah. where like all the stuff that's wrong all the stuff that we shouldn't do because you know they're told well, like it really does get that way so i mean when i was in the ifb i would do things that i wouldn't consider morally wrong now but would have considered morally wrong then and i would get a buzz off of it like rolling my shirt my shirt sleeves up to my shoulder so that i could not have a farmer's tan that was something that i was told was wrong and i would i would get like a thrill out of doing that so it, it makes sense within the funny mindset. What well, was the uh, the thrill from like, oh, I'm doing something that's wrong? Or was the thrill from like, oh, I'm sticking it to these people who are trying to control me? See, I think that's uh, two different both. things. A little bit of both, I think. Mm. Yeah. That's a little spicy. But... <laughs> I never mind. I'm not gonna not gonna not gonna go there during Pride Month. So oh, <laughs> denying so so in these people's mindset, denying LGBT people legal rights, trying to oust them from society as much as possible, making them afraid to quote unquote sin, making them fear for their safety, and saying horrible horrible things about them is branded as the compassionate thing to do because you're trying to save them from their sin and trying to save their eternal soul from hell. Which, by the way, mm. this was a huge factor for me getting out of the IFB because I realized that I was attracted to people of multiple genders. And that was just a fact about who I was or who I am. And I knew that I had never been sexually abused as a child. And I knew, I thought and thought and thought and thought, and I could not come up with a time when I had chosen to be bisexual. So this was one of several things that I just, I could not make what I was taught make sense. So did this make you think that maybe this was a sin you were born with? Like, was that ever an intermediate step for you? No, I skipped that step. I, I can run you through my thought process. So at the time, I believed that we are all born with original sin. That's the sin nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve the natural inclination of humans to not always do the right thing. The guarantee that even the most pure and righteous person will sin at least once in their life. Of course, by fundy standards, sin is defined only by the literal words in the Bible. So if you have ever told a white lie or any kind of untruth, that's a sin. And it's pretty much guaranteed that everyone will do that at least once in their life. This, by the way, is the trail that fundies go down to say that infants are sinful and that babies who cry for attention are sinning <laughs> which gets me a lot worse now as a parent I, I did not see how it was fair for god to just program a person with a sin that other people didn't have i also was taught that god's creation is perfect and that god personally chooses your hair color and eye color and height and everything else about a person before they're born. So my logic was, if God chose everything about me down to the number of hairs on my head, which is in scripture, then God must have created me bisexual because I cannot figure out what else would have made me bisexual. And since God is incapable of sinning, and sin is always a choice. 
then if God chose to make me bisexual, being bisexual cannot be a sin. Does that make sense? That that makes perfect sense to me. Of course, like the you know the the it's like using the Bill Gothard design principle <laughs> against, against them. <laughs> yeah, yes, against exactly. Them. Judo move. Wha <laughs> Yeah. Basically, what I'm saying is that the IFB logic on this completely falls apart if you are not a straight cis person. And this is why there are plenty of Christian LGBT people in many different denominations, but I have never heard of an out LGBT person who is in the IFB unless they're like trying to do conversion therapy or something. It simply cannot work with their teachings about sin and creation and God. And, you know, like we talked about with Shoshana, their view of uh, of uh, uh, homosexuality as being a sin, it, it, they're, they're treating homosexuality as the same as pedophilia, as the same as watching adult pornography. The, like those three things are all the same sin. Yeah, it's all the sin of sexual immorality because any sexual activity that is not between a married couple consisting of a cis man and a cis woman is a sin. So everything else in the vast range of human sexuality falls under that umbrella of sexual immorality. So I'm picking up where we left off in our first Pride episode this year. We talked about how LGBT people literally always existed. And we talked about some of the nuance of how they were able to exist in society. I gave you an overview of how the first gay activism started and how that turned into pride as we have it today. So this week, I'm going to look at the other side. I'm going to talk about the backlash to that, because as I've been studying more, I've been learning about how that early gay activism created these grooming allegations that we see now, or the backlash to it created the allegations that we see now. So the field of sexology took off from the late 1800s up until the 1930s. And for the first time, people in academia were studying human sexuality in a different way, in a more academic way, and they were writing and publishing research on this. While LGBTQ people have always existed, this is where we get a lot of the modern concepts of homosexuality. People codified and put names to behaviors that had always existed. I'm glad we did the first episode before getting to this one because I think it's important background to understand how queer people had to stay in the closet for the most part. They were compelled by society to stay under the radar, and they had a very, very tiny amount of freedom as long as they kept every single rule all the time. I think it also gives background on why we don't see a lot of blatant anti-gay activism until the 1940s, and why we certainly don't see the rhetoric that we hear today until the 1970s. It's interesting to me, by the way, that homophobes will will try to imply that being gay is some kind of new invention of the 60s, when actually openly campaigning against gay people is a lot newer <laughs> than being gay. Which is why, of course, it's, it's really fun to bring uh, to bring up King James to that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. I mean, they almost pseudo worship a bisexual man, yet they're hateful of bisexual people. Yeah. It's 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 very it's very weird. Uh, <laughs> Just based uh, on my 
historical knowledge, it seems to me that the anti-feminist movement was more of like the hot thing pre-1970s. Like feminism was the thing that all of the fundamentalist and extremely conservative people hated. Like that was the this thing is destroying families and tearing down traditions, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly the narrative shifted in the late 70s to focus so much more on hatred and fear of gay men and then of all LGBT people. And then now the narrative is focused most sharply on trans people, although there's a lot of, you know, they people still hate feminists and people still hate women and people still hate gay men and people still hate all LGBT people. But now like the the worst of it is getting aimed at trans people. But what I really wanted to know is where specifically this allegation of grooming children comes from. I hate that that word has been co-opted as a right-wing dog whistle. I hate that because this is a legitimate concept that harms children. And now I have so many other associations with the word that are not the real definition. And I hate that. People are just allowed to do that with language. But I heard growing up plenty that gay men are all pedophiles. I had heard like we've talked about so many times on the show, that people are only gay because they were molested as children. And this specific libel has been amplified to a whole new level this year. So that's why I felt like it was important to dig into where it came from. So we talked about this. um, Man, Shoshana was a great guest. Yeah, when she came on um, and we read Jack Scoff's book, his whole book was like basically mental health problems are always caused by trauma in the youth and not being right with God. Mm -hmm. And like that's their whole thing is that youth trauma causes this. Youth trauma, everything that's wrong with you is caused by trauma in the youth. Right. And um, that's why we send our children to Christian schools so they won't have trauma in public schools. And um, that's why we keep our kids in church so they won't have time to do anything else and get into any trouble. But this echoes the conservative, which, which of course, sorry, which of course puts the children in positions where people like Dave Hiles and Jack Scott have access to them, which causes trauma. <sighs> but this, this echoes the conservative Christian thought process that people are made to be LGBT by childhood adverse experiences, almost always sexual abuse, uh, unless they take the other path of choosing to become gay after doing all the other sins. And I mean, we, and we know that like childhood sexual abuse can absolutely affect somebody's sexuality when they're an adult. Oh, yeah. But I like and I, I looked into this. I, you know, I when I was doing research, I was not able to find any evidence really pointing to the conclusion that it can affect orientation you know like it's it's not going to affect uh like what genders of people that you're attracted to it's just going to affect other things to do with your sexuality um right yeah but you know i've seen people say this before like i've seen people make this claim well you know uh sometimes people are you know gay because they uh, because of of uh, being molested or something like that. I've seen people make this claim, not even within the context of them being fundy. I've seen that in like the mainstream. I think it was in like the mainstream. It was just kind of a thing that people thought for a while. That's also kind of a bit of a double-edged sword because, you know, they will then hide behind this 
you know, to defend pedophiles. Like one prominent example that I remember is you remember, you know, R. Kelly, prolific pedophile, um, and now uh, in prison, uh, R&B singer. One of his big defenses for why he was, I, as he put the way he is, is that he was molested as a child. He's like, I was molested as a child. And so now um, I have no I, like he he's like now i have this compulsion to molest underage girls you know and that's sort of a thing that, that these people will hide behind to uh dodge accountability right it can be a an avenue to demonize people that they want to demonize and defend people that they want to defend all at the same time one handy tool hmm. So the myth that gay men specifically are pedophiles, you're right. It's older than the religious right's all-out crusade against LGBT people's existence. By the way, I call this a myth because uh, statistically straight-identifying adult men are the most likely category of people to sexually abuse children of any gender. It, it is absolutely a myth. But hmm. the idea that gay people become gay because of abuse, that I don't think that did start within the church, from what I can tell. So where did it come from then? It looks to me like this came from shifts in psychology. So Freud thought that hmm. homosexuality, I, I love that reaction noise. He thought that <laughs> homosexuality was a mental illness, not a moral failing but a fault in a person's mental health, just like any other mental illness. So this move, this is still progress because it's moving out of the idea that this is a moral failing or a moral defect or a something that makes you a bad, evil person. Other psychologists of the time disagreed. And this back and forth in psychology, whether being LGBT was just something that was inborn to people uh, or something that was learned or caused by trauma, and whether it was a mental illness or a moral failing or neither, just a, one of many facts about a person, that struggle went on until the 1970s when homosexuality was removed from the DSM by a huge majority vote of the APA. When did we talk about Freud before? Last, no, you know what it was? It was last year when we talked about conversion therapy, that conversion therapy was invent it was invented by psychologists and found to be largely ineffective, but then the fundies kind of got a hold of it and they said, hey, look, there's a thing that the scientists invented and it's real science because they invented it, even though they didn't Because do psychology in, in, the, in the attempt to make progress went through a bad phase where they thought that being gay was something that needed to be fixed or that it was a, some kind of defect in a person. And thankfully, they've been able to move, psychology has been able to move past that. I want you to listen closely to this next part, though, because there is a subtle but hugely important change in the narrative coming up here. And this is really where the religious right takes the reins of anti-gay sentiment. And I think it's extremely predictive of where we've ended up today. Oh, I'm anxious to hear. So in 1977, Anita Bryant, a Christian singer, got upset by cities passing gay rights bills. So she created an organization called Save Our Children, Inc. And based mm. the organization, right? And based the organization's campaign on this phrase, quote, homosexuals cannot reproduce, so they must recruit. I swear, every time somebody creates like a, a an organization that's like the name for something like that, or it's like, save it, what do you not support? Save Our Children, 
Like, right. Uh, do not it's, a, it's a trap. Americans for an American America. Like, God. right. Um, mm. But so homosexuals cannot reproduce. They must recruit. That's- right. And then Jerry Falwell used the same phrase in a fundraising letter sent out in 1981. He wrote, please remember, homosexuals don't reproduce. They recruit and they are out after your children and my children. I, I don't think that anybody was trying to get Jerry Falwell Jr. I'm going to be real. Um, but this is this is the crucial shift in the narrative from my perspective, because this is where it changes from homosexuals are bad to homosexuals are dangerous and they are out to get your children by purposely turning them gay. And so this is before like the the AIDS crisis hit. So right, this is this this narrative is really picking up in the very late 1970s, very early 1980s. And by the way, I have I have links on links um, that'll be available to you if you want to look at timelines of this and different historical sources that I turned up. So this is before the whole oh like gay pe- you can't even touch them because you might get a disease and die. Like this is pre that. This is. Right. So, so what are they, they're saying that basically what that 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 gay people are going to what some way abuse a child and then that's going to plant a seed of future gayness, future homosexuality. It, it, so their kind can survive. I I, I guess mm, I don't know. I guess it stands to reason because fundies torture and abuse gay children in in order to try to make them straight. So it makes sense that they would think it would work the other way around. I don't know. I mm, At this, this point, gross. late 70s, early 80s, I think that is, I think that narrative comes a little bit later. The narrative at the time is they are exposing your children to the idea of being gay and mentally coercing your children into being gay so that there are more gay people in the future. The idea that you just brought up of they are abusing children to make them gay, that's the next twist that comes along. And that twist comes with the related concepts of they want to shut down the churches that oppose them. They want to close our doors. They want to eradicate the nuclear family. They want to run the government. They basically want gay people to be in charge of the world. And this may be a little bit of a sidebar, but I found something ridiculously interesting about this concept. So buckle up. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, there was a satirical piece published in Boston's Gay Community News, a small community newspaper, in 1987. It was a satire of anti-gay propaganda, and it was identified at the top of the piece that it was satire. I just want to read a couple tiny tidbits from this. I would read the whole thing if we had time. So here's here's a couple of poll quotes for you. Quote, We shall sodomize your sons, emblems of your feeble masculinity, of your shallow dreams and vulgar lies. We shall seduce them in your schools, in your dormitories, in your gymnasiums, in your locker rooms, in your sports arenas, in your seminaries, in your youth groups, in your movie theater bathrooms, in your army bunkhouses, in your truck stops, in in your all-male clubs, in your houses of Congress, wherever men are with men together. We will eliminate heterosexual liaisons through usage of the Redeeming the Rainbow 203 devices of wit and ridicule, devices which we are skilled in employing. We will demonstrate that homosexuality and intelligence and imagination are inextricably linked and that homosexuality is a requirement for true nobility, true beauty in a man. We shall be victorious. 
because we are fueled with the ferocious bitterness of the oppressed who have been forced to play seemingly bit parts in your dumb heterosexual shows throughout the ages. We too are capable of firing guns and manning the barricades of the ultimate revolution. Tremble, hetero swine, when we appear before you without our masks. Oh my god, this is this is like the gay version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. That's exactly right? what it is. Yeah, so like it, like in the, like this is a hoax. This is fully a hoax. And it's identified that, as such at the beginning. It, but people glommed onto it because they wanted to believe it was or it's like John Todd and those Illuminati letters in Playboy, you yes. know? Yes. That is exactly or, what this is. Yeah, it's it's you know what it is? It's the protocols of the daddies of Zion. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but this is it is absolutely the gay version of the protocols, but the difference is it was written by the oppressed people in question and it was written as satire, not as propaganda. But people believed this so hard that this document got submitted to Congress and the Supreme Court. Dude, what? I found this. This turned up in a Supreme Court case. What Supreme Court case could possibly require this? So it was actually uh, a huge case. It was Lawrence versus Texas. The case. Really? Yeah. The case over whether states can what? criminalize homosexual activity. I've put tons of links in the sources on this as well. That's like, that's legitimately groundbreaking. That, yeah, that was this a is, groundbreaking yeah. case. Yeah. I didn't recognize the name, but as soon as I Googled it, I it came back to my memory. This is the case where police entered an apartment in 1998 in Texas over reported weapons disturbance, which was a false report. The police caught two men in the act of having sex who were then charged with misdemeanors because sex between two men was still a misdemeanor in the state of Texas in 1998. One of those two men, John Lawrence, appealed his case all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And eventually, this landmark ruling struck down laws against sex between two men in Texas, as well as 13 other states. This is literally the case that made it legal to have for two men to have sex in the United States, which is a bit mind-blowing. That's in 1998. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court case was in 2003, and I know that this shouldn't be mm, news to what? me, but, like, I was raised in a cult. Give me a little bit of credit. Okay, it that's is, nuts. Like, you don't think about how recently, I mean, I, I read about a little bit of a little bit of the concept of, like, non-straight sex being illegal when I was researching for the first episode this month, but it doesn't hit you until you realize how recent this was so so they, they submitted this like obvious hoax that says it's a hoax at the top they submitted it as evidence yes. in the supreme the, so the supreme court looked at this and said you guys know this is a hoax right like nobody looked it up before none of their lawyers looked it up beforehand and said like to make sure that it wasn't a what so how it was submitted what I've linked this so if anybody who knows more about law than I do wants to take a look and make sure that I'm correct, I've linked the filing in which it's included. I, As far as I can tell, it was submitted as, well, they say that this was satire, but was it really satire or is this really the gay secret plot to take over the country? Clearly it's satire. Clearly. But like they, when they submitted it, they cut out the first sentence that says this is satire. <laughs> 
But like, Jesus. what if they just said it was satire to trick us because it was really partially true of their evil plot to take over the United States? Okay, but like the redeeming the rainbow two oh three devices, like what is what is that supposed to is that like a laser beam that you shoot somebody with and it makes them gay? Like <laughs> I don't know. Like maybe like call me when that hits Amazon and I can get free two day shipping and maybe I'll be concerned. So no. is there any way that we can retrofit the Jewish space laser plans or maybe even like modify <laughs> the Jewish space laser lasers so that they can dual function as redeeming the rainbow two or three is like flip the switch and it's one thing, flip the switch the other way. And it's the other thing. Can we do you know, that? I'll ask uh, uh, Philip Rothschild. That's <laughs> the, <laughs> the, oh. the fictional Rothschild. I don't know. Um, ask Philip Rothschild. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was maybe the best joke you've ever made on this podcast. Okay, but like, like if if this is a laser beam that makes people gay, why would they call it the redeeming the rainbow 203 device and not the obvious name for it, which is the gazer beam? <laughs> you know, like I'll tell, like that's a I, that's a very legitimate question. I'm, look, as soon as the gazer beam comes to market. We will see Republicans in this country support meaningful gun control legislation. You know what I'm saying? Like that ban would hit immediately. Like, honestly, if we're trying to figure out ways to turn people gay, though, I'm still going to have to put my money on Dinah's demon (laughs) ring. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I feel like that has a proven success story. Yeah. And I just haven't heard any success stories from the Gazer Beam yet. Gazer Beam, no. So yeah. the narrative was, so just to kind of like sum up where we've been and where we're going here. The narrative pre the religious rights all out assault on LGBT rights was that gay people and feminism are destroying the morals of our society. It was a a moral thing, not a political thing. And as it became a political thing where cities were actually, cities and later states and later federal laws were actually giving gay people human rights, it shifted into being a political thing more than a moral thing. And the narrative shifted to being focused on reproduction. This is here where you hear people say that children need a male and a female parent, that LGBT people shouldn't be allowed to adopt. And that shift also brought along that they can't reproduce, so they recruit statement. So the new narrative is that LGBT people are out to recruit your children by being visible, existing in in society, making quote-unquote sin seem acceptable and fun. And then the next shift in the narrative comes along, which is they are recruiting children by sexually abusing them. And then the most recent shift, even just in the last few months, even just in this year, has been to say that allowing children to be exposed to the ideas of queerness or transness is in itself a type of sexual abuse. So that's kind of the arc that this narrative has taken so far. So I want to bring up something that you said, like at the very start of the episode, you said that you were taught that LGBT people are sexualizing children. That's that's their dealio. And I think that's really weird because in learning about fundamentalism, I have like I have never encountered a modern day group that is as prolific in their sexualization of children as the fundies. 
So the people who insist that infant and toddler girls wear dresses so that they conform to proper gender roles, but then also put modesty sweaters and tights on those same babies because their thighs or shoulders might cause lust. Those people ah. sexualize children. <laughs> yeah, thunk? those people are worried that the presence of an LGBT person in a public school classroom is equivalent to sexual abuse. Like this, this has always confused me. Because, like, but I think I get like so. Hmm. T- tell me if I'm right about this. So the fundies, not just I guess not just the fundies, the conservative evangelicals, they heavily believe in raising your children to prepare them for marriage. That's right, right, right. Um, marriage is a part of fulfilling their gender roles. It's not two separate things. It's all kind of wrapped up together, like marriage and keeping house and having babies and being joyfully available and being feminine and submissive are all one thing. It's a woman's role. And that role has many parts. But yes, they're raising children to prepare them for that role. So the idea that you're not raising, say, say you're not raising your kids to to prepare them for marriage like that the idea that you wouldn't do that like that that's that's like a foreign concept to them like raising your children not an opposite to that but like absentia to that is just like an alien concept to them so if you're not raising your kids to prepare them to marry and pop out kids to be soldiers for God in the culture war. You're raising kids to not marry and to be gay and to be sinners and to be soldiers against God in the culture war. So it's, it's the right. binary thing. It, right. It's the black and white thinking. And it goes back to the Vision Forum supported 200 year plan, which was literally a plan on paper to out reproduce and outvote the liberals and take the country back. See, it okay, see, it's not that they have issues with grooming children. That's what that's what I was trying to get. It's not that they have an issue with the tactic of grooming children because like I mean they they literally do. They view it as a tactic. It's not that they have an issue with that because by their own admission that's exactly what they're doing. It's that they believe that the liberals are grooming kids for evil in the public schools. While they're grooming kids for good in the churches, it's oh my god! It's so it's literally the definition of projection when they're accusing people of uh, of the grooming libel. Oh my god! So the it's, other thing, yeah, there's another thing that I wanted uh, to point out about the grooming allegations. There's all this buzz, and I see this on like people's Facebook feed and Twitter and whatever about how how is a six year old responsible enough to choose their gender. Or like, you know, the stupid memes about, you know, is it a boy or a girl? Well, we don't know. We're going to let them choose or we don't know. We're going to let the kindergarten teacher tell us. It's just stupid right wing memes. I haven't seen that, but <clears throat> yeah, I'm clearly not following the wrong people on social media. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes people sometimes people continue to follow people on social media so that they know what people are saying so that they can write podcast episodes about it. I respect the strategy. Yeah. Mm. But these are the same people who believe that a child can change the destination of their eternal soul by coming to an understanding of Jesus's atonement for our sins and making a true confession of repentance at four years old. So how are they old enough for that and not old enough to know what gender they are? Is what I would like to ask. My question about that is what sins could a four-year-old possibly commit that they could understand the implications of? 
we're going to have to do an episode on that sometime. We can make the title um, The Long List of Sins That I Thought I Had Committed Before Kindergarten. I mean, other than like stealing a toy from your brother or something like that when they weren't done playing with it, you know? Like, I want so bad to like theologically answer your question, but if I do, it's going to derail the entire rest of this episode. So please put it on our episode ideas because I can talk forever about that. I'll add it to our like three page long <laughs> list of episode ideas. <laughs> Jesus. In the interest of intellectual honesty. I should concede that from the IFB perspective, a child praying a prayer can't hurt, and they genuinely believe that six-year-olds are being offered permanent gender confirmation medical treatments. However, from my perspective, which I would argue is more reasonable, a child being taught that they should fear hell and obsess over sins is harmful. That is hurting the child. I was hurt by that. And no doctor in their right mind is prescribing any kind of permanent body alteration treatment to a child of that age because there is no medical reason to do so. And it would be against all medical advice and ethics. Like if you pierce your baby's ears, then right? people, people will f***ing get mad at you about that. Right, well, you that's, know? Why, that's why I haven't, you know, I understand that like for some people it's a cultural thing and I tend to give much more of a pass on that. But that's what well, I haven't done. I haven't pierced Chuck's ears. I will do it when she's old enough to ask for it and then play a part in taking care of the piercing aftercare. Yeah, I just got my uh, first ear pierced like a week ago. Are you doing your salt soaks? Yeah, I'm doing my salt soaks. Okay. I did one earlier today. I'm going to do one before I go to bed. It's going to be good. I'm one of um, those people, like, if my friend gets a piercing or a tattoo, I'm, like, your mother all of a sudden Yeah, on, no, on I, piercing and tattoo aftercare. <laughs> so I, I want to dig into this particular fear a little bit, this particular libel about very young children being given gender confirmation surgery or being given hormones. Because the narrative that I'm hearing from the right is, if you allow a child to be exposed to the idea that some people are trans, the child is going to transition because it seems fun, or the child is going to be socially pressured to transition. They're going to be given hormones or surgery. They're going to have their body permanently altered before they like before they even reach puberty and then as a teenager or a young adult they're going to regret this transition and they're going to be left with the consequences of these permanent physical changes that doesn't so, sound fun no what well that you? sounds awful that would be an awful thing to happen to a child and and this is what but this is what the right legitimately believes is happening when a young child comes out as trans You'll see a lot of people, and this is where the horseshoe theory of the TERFs and the fundamentalists is extremely horseshoey. Um, TERFs will talk about, they'll, they'll give a personal narrative like, oh, well, I was an, a uh, I was an AFAB child who wished that I was a boy because I wanted the freedom that I thought boys had. I wanted to play with trucks and wear jeans and cut my hair short. And if my parents had been modern parents, they would have sat me down and said, oh, you must be a trans boy. And then they would have pressured me into having gender confirmation surgery at a young age. And now I would have to detransition and I would never be able to have children. And this is this is a narrative that I've heard from TERFs and right-wing people alike. And it's simply not how any of this works. Yeah. I mean, but that, that's a serious question. And I guess you're a parent. 
how would you know if your child wants to transition, right? Like it's because it's not going to be, oh, my five-year-old daughter likes race cars and camping. She must want to be a boy. Like it's not going to be like, oh, my five-year-old son likes horses. Maybe I should buy him a bunch of pretty dresses and like chop his penis off. Like, no, that's not going to. That's ridiculous. So I am a liberal parent who prepared for the possibility of having a trans or non-binary child before my child was born. Honestly, I was having conversations on how would we deal with this if it ever comes up with my husband before my child was ever conceived. If my kid likes toy trucks and having short hair, I'm simply going to buy her toy trucks and let her cut her hair short. I'm never going to sit my child down and suggest to my child, oh, well, I think you're a trans boy and I think we should go to the doctor and get you medicine. My kid will be exposed to trans and non-binary people throughout her life because I am friends in real life with a lot of different queer trans non-binary people. And if one day she comes to me and she says, mom, I really, really, really want to be a boy, I'd offer her the opportunity to socially transition, which literally just means using he, him pronouns or any other pronouns that fit and wearing whatever my kid wants to wear. And then whatever happens from there is what happens. But I guess I just, I wanted to express this in case there's any fundies listening or for any like newer deconstructors out there who are still feeling kind of iffy about this whole topic. I want you to know where me and all of my liberal parent friends stand on this because you're being grossly misled about our parenting and our philosophies if you think that we're just waiting for our child to express any gender nonconformity so that we can immediately jump to proclaiming them trans and offering them permanent physical procedures that will change their body forever. If you're being told that, you're being lied to about me and all of my liberal parent friends. And I want to, if, if that's something that you're hearing about liberal parents like me, I want to reassure you that that's not that's not how we are. I promise that, that none of us would ever want that for our children, at least not me and anybody that I know, anybody that I associate with. Not to say, of course, that there aren't people out there who would willingly exploit their own children for like attention or fame or money or even like a cause that they believe in. Oh, like Jim Bob Duggar? I mean, exactly like Jim Bob Duggar. But I was thinking of, of like YouTube family vloggers, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just found out that they exist. Uh. That, that's true, though. I am sure that there are parents who would pressure or unduly influence their children to transition at the, at the first sign of gender nonconformity. But what I, what I want to sincerely express to people is that is far from the norm. It, it, it really is. Yeah. Well, like they would just like almost like that it would be like a point of pride for them to have. Uh, yeah. Well, like the, I'm sure there are people who would like kind of hope that their kid would want to transition because then they would have like points in their column for, oh, look what a great liberal parent I am. Because mm-hmm. there's like there's shitty self-centered parents that are all kinds of political and religious views. Yes. Narcissism does not have a uh, a, 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 a political home. It is everywhere. Right. It is all over the place. And you get people who want the attention and want that right but like like i have gotten a lot of good like as i've been parenting for like 15 months now 
I've gotten a lot of good out of having parent friends and the dozens of parents that I have surrounded myself with that I speak to about parenting related things. Many of us kind of had had an idea of how we would treat a child who expressed a desire to transition. And out of all of those people that I talk to about this kind of thing, none of us are would would jump to the conclusion of like, oh, you you are trans and you are going to be trans forever. And we should just steamroll right into transition at seven or eight years old. All of the the <laughs> overwhelming consensus among people like me is we would we would accept our child, we would offer whatever social transition that is completely reversible that the, the child wants to do. We would love them no matter what. And if they did want to do like trans like gender confirmation transition related things when they're old enough and when it is necessary, we would fully support them. But anyway, I just I feel like that's important because I feel like this is where I'm getting slandered as well as so many other people that I care about. <laughs> Even with like the full support of your parents from like a young age, it's still a rough road, man. Like you're, it's still not easy. Right. It's not like somebody would just be like, I'm, I'm just going to do this because like on a whim, you know, it's just like, that's right. And I'm, I'm going to circle back to that. That's I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I'm going to come back to that in a little bit here. It's not going to make your life easier in any way. At all. Right. Right. So the other thing that I wanted, I mean, until we get to the point in society where trans people are seen as just another variation of normal gender identity and presentation and being trans is just the thing that some people are just like, you know, just like yeah. any other variation of normal. Yeah. So the other thing that I that I wanted to point out is that this particular type of turfiness uh, reduces gender identity to external things. And this is connected to the turf point of view that trans men are just masculine lesbians, which totally ignores the fact that gender identity and sexual orientation are two separate things, but that they're being forced to identify as male, which comes back full circle into it being a form of violence against women. This is just like how other people will say, well, when I was five, I identified as a dinosaur. It's people who have no idea what they're talking about making up. Like, did you cry in bed at night because you didn't have claws and a tail when you were five years old? Did you attempt to change your voice to sound like a dinosaur at all times? Or did you attempt to change your body to look more like a dinosaur? Did you feel unable to cope when people at school didn't recognize that you were a dinosaur? No? Okay, then you don't understand. Your analogy is... I feel like, okay. you know, right-wingers, they have that's like their one joke, man, that they've got, right? They have one joke. That's like, the, like they, they run that to the ground. Like, have you seen the screenshot? Have have you seen that? You know, you know Babylon B. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know that. So Babylon B. They, they. I, I saw somebody did a screenshot, like a, a collage of every time Babylon B. Made an identifies as joke in the in their headline. Mm. Like, and it was just like a. There was like twenty, thirty. It must have been. So like, it's just every article that they've put out in the last five years. Uh, every fucking article, like on it's it's just lazy at this point, like. I mean, it's, it's got, it, you know what it's got? It's gotten to, I didn't do it status. It's extremely lazy. Like, I mean, except right wingers still laughing at there. You just say identifies as anything and they'll just yuck it up because 
But seriously, like I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Like say I'm a parent and I've got a seven-year-old who's in kindergarten, first grade, whatever. My kid has a friend from school come over to the house and they're like building Legos or something. And my kid's friend is in a dress. How in the f- is it any of my business whether or not this seven-year-old wearing a dress is AFAB or AMAB. Like, th- how, how... It is, is absolutely not your business. It, it does not affect you in any meaningful way. Exactly. <laughs> you just, like, get the kids' pronouns, use the kids' pronouns. Right. Give the kids 18 years plus to figure out who they are and how they want to <laughs> present themselves to the world. Hmm. It's as simple as that, because it does not affect you <laughs> at and, all. Like, the other, the other side of this, if if I was a parent, if I, if I found out that any grown adult who was not my child's pediatrician was doing a check on or asking questions about my child's genitals, I would probably like... That's what I would do. As a parent, I can tell you that culturally people are way too obsessed. (laughs) Baby Chuck... She happens to have a pink stroller because somebody gave it to us. Every time I take her out of the house and she is not dressed very feminine, like when she wears her little Metallica onesies, people get super obsessed with asking whether she's a boy or a girl before they can like compliment her smile. Like it's a baby with a cute smile. I don't really know. Like I'll find out her gender like six to 18 years from now. Until then, your guess is as good as mine, bud. (laughs) Like, I use she, her pronouns for my baby because statistically, she's most likely to grow up into a person who uses she, her pronouns. And like, that's my highest chance of being correct with the pronouns that I'm guessing for her right now. And I'll change which ones I use once or a thousand times if I need to. Like, I don't understand why you need to know a baby's gender to like, say they have a cute smile. See, this is just another reason why you shouldn't have gender reveal parties. Oh, um, boy. I, I was reading about this is that American children start puberty younger than other kids around the world. Have you heard this? Like, I, I don't know if it's I, I looked up if it was from hormones in the meat or something. And apparently it's it, they don't think it's from hormones in the meat. I don't know why it is. It might be from other environmental factors. But like before puberty. None of this like a hormone surgery stuff matters, does it? Like, like Sadie was saying with like transitioning socially, if you're even if you're like an adult, you have to do that for a while to make sure that it it's like the right thing to do before they'll let you do HRT or surgery or anything. That's true. So the conservative narrative and the conservative fear is that children, very little children who express a desire to transition will be allowed to make permanent choices about their bodies when they are not mature enough to make those permanent choices. And that is, it's simply not true. If a kid is being prescribed HRT, what they're talking about is puberty blockers. Puberty blockers correctly prescribed are 100% reversible. All it is doing is buying time for that child to be old enough to make a decision that is a a rational, well-thought-out decision on whether they want to transition or not. Like, I didn't start puberty until I was, like, 12 or 13, which I think is, like, fairly late for boys, especially in this country. 
I don't like I had friends that were, you know, trying to go out with girls in fifth grade. And I just wanted to play with like Legos and build Star Wars Legos through like seventh or eighth grade. If your kid starts puberty at 13 instead of 10, it's not going to ruin their life. It might like, I don't know, maybe it'll make them taller, you know, like you'll, you'll keep growing before you, you hit those growth spurts. And so you'll be taller. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is not. If your kid does go on blockers and then later decides that transitioning is not for them, it is not going to have any permanent effects. Maybe their height will be different than it would have been. That's that's you're right. That's literally it. Yeah, but Bill Gothard wouldn't like that because of the design principle. Um, I do, like. But I, what if your kid was designed to be a gender questioning young teenager? I don't know. That sounds real Calvinist to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like. I I also think like honestly because recently we've seen like a massive amount of distrust of the medical community. Uh, from coming from the right wing, you know, with the vaccines, with I mean, you know, with like everything, especially with the vaccines, but also with it, like, but no doctor is going to do a gender confirmation surgery on a ten-year-old. That like that would be against any medical ethics. I think I read an article a few years ago about like a seventeen-year-old who got it done, and it, that was like one of the youngest people to ever have it done, like seventeen. Also, like, 17 is at or above the age of consent in, I think, like, 38 states. I had to look it up. It's good to know that you did have to Google that. Yeah, I did have to Google that fact. I did, like, I, that is not a fact that I know off the top of my head. Um, Thank I'm you not, for clarifying that. I really appreciate it. I'm not Jack Scop with a f***ing countdown clock of his favorite Hammond Baptist Ugh. high school students. Gross, um, gross, gross, gross. Yeah, no, I, I, I think... Honestly, though, I think it, it's like that's kind of f-ed up legally speaking. If you can legally have sex with a grown adult, but you can't legally have a gender confirmation surgery if you want it, you you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like pick a lane. Yeah, pick a lane and stick in it. Yeah, but so I yeah. just want to throw. We, we have to go to break because this this first half has gone a little bit long. But I want to throw some statistics and facts at this real quick before we go to the offering. And I've, I've linked all of these for you. It's true that children who socially transition do sometimes want to return to living as their assigned gender at birth. This is just like nobody's denying that fact. We're just saying that it's not much of an issue because if a, if a little child use different pronouns and maybe grew their hair out and bought new clothes the only damage done is to the parents bank account that bought them all the new clothes nobody is offering any permanent transition to small children of adults who have transitioned studies have shown that between half a percent and eight percent do experience regret over having transitioned and some of those people do eventually detransition but in the study that showed the highest number of people who regretted transitioning or did eventually detransition, over half of those people felt regret or did eventually detransition because of social pressure and family pressure, not because of a change in their gender identity. Hmm. This number has been as high as 90% in other studies of detransitioners. So people who transition and then later regret it Usually, it's not because they quit identifying 
as a trans person, it's because it wasn't worth it to them to continue living as the identity that they really do identify as because of external pressures. So to sum all that up, detransitioning is actually very rare. It's much more likely to be a result of external pressure than a change in gender identity. And it's com- It's more common in children who were experimenting with gender, and that is really not a big deal. Well, I mean, that's an argument against everything that the right wing is saying anyway, because if it's a social pressure, if you take away the social pressure, then the issue goes away. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I if like- you take away the social and family pressure to detransition, it appears that very few people ever would. Yeah. Because trans people are telling us the truth about who they are mind-blowing concept (laughs) yeah yeah so let's go take up the offering when we get back i want to talk about we've talked about all of these fears and we've tried to debunk some of them we've talked about where they came from when we come back i want to talk about how do we deal with people who have these fears that we've been talking about cool let's do it Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. So before we start the second half of this episode, first I want to recommend, if you want to learn way more about the gender critical movement, grooming libel, how people get caught up into this, please go watch the documentary on YouTube The documentary is called Inside a Cult. The YouTuber is Kaylin Conrad, C-A-E-L-A-N. I am not kidding. This is probably the absolute best indie documentary I have ever seen in my entire life. Would you define gender critical movement real quick? Uh, Gender critical encompasses TERFs, so trans exclusionary radical feminists, people who are ostensibly liberal, but believe that trans people are not valid and like to attack trans women. But it also encompasses right-wing people who just don't believe that being trans or gay is real. So it's a broader term 
for all kinds of anti-trans activists. So it's basically like if if you study gender theory or things like that, they're like they're they're reactionary to that specifically. Yes. Okay. I highly, highly recommend people watch the the documentary. Kaylin explains it way better than I could. I'm linking part one of the documentary in the Patreon source post for this episode. I'm asking Gavi to put it in the show notes as well. It is a super deep dive. I promise it's worth it. So Kaylin started off by calling the gender critical movement a cult. And I was like very skeptical about that. I was not easily convinced, but they totally won me over. The documentary is incredibly long, but it's a hundred percent worth your time. You know, I <laughs> I am a very busy person. I don't have a lot of time to watch YouTube videos. And if I'm recommending something, I hope you take that seriously. So before we get into talking about people who are experiencing the fears that we talked about in the first half of this episode, I feel like I am obligated to acknowledge that it does feel ridiculous to validate and kid glove someone who is afraid of things that we might see as so unlikely and so ridiculous and sometimes absolutely untrue and easily debunked. We're out here afraid for our trans friends and family's lives and safety. And these people are afraid of nebulous, scary trans women in bathrooms and six-year-olds being prescribed hormone therapy. It's not the same. If your rightful anger over grooming libel and the increasing safety risks to our LGBT community members and family is too much for you to engage with these fears, that's okay. This advice is not meant to make you feel like you have to go out and fight this fight. And it's not for dealing with people who are deep into this ideology and are going to fight back and try to hurt you. It's not for dealing with people who are already out to harm trans people on purpose. This advice is intended to help you pull people on the fringe of this harmful, fearful ideology far enough out of the ideology that they wouldn't be willing to harm anyone. And then maybe, hopefully, they will want to learn even more and they would eventually become an ally. My hope is that this will help you help the people who do want to be helped. I felt that I had to make it clear exactly who this advice is for and who it's meant to help because I don't want to come off as, you know, respectability politics always. You must be nice to all the transphobes and all the homophobes all the time because I just I don't see that as realistic. I see some best practice tactics for dealing with a specific type of person who has been indoctrinated with these fears, but is willing to have their fears debunked if you work hard enough. And you and I have both used these techniques in real life and like been successful with them. Yes, I have and probably will again. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the episode and hope that you guys get something from it. So we are back from break and woohoo. Woo-hoo. I would like to open up part two by talking about fear. So a person who is spreading grooming libel, a person who is voting against LGBT rights, a person who is posting homophobic on Facebook is acting in fear. We talked extensively in the first half about how this fear developed through the years like the the homosexual manifesto, the satirical document that was published in the 80s, uh, that people bought into that. And they bought into this idea of the gay agenda that 
LGBT people wanted to institute compulsory homosexuality, which is hilarious because we still live in the world of compet, that they hmm. wanted to eradicate straight people and recruit young people into becoming gay since they can't have children of their own. This is also a ridiculous claim because plenty of lesbians used creative tactics to get pregnant before IUI and IVF and sperm donors became more mainstream. That's not the topic of this episode, but I did have to point out that that is ridiculous. So we talked about the origins of the idea that LGBT people are trying to recruit people into choosing to be LGBT, how that evolved throughout the years, into a fear that mere exposure to the existence of LGBT people will harm children. And this is now being used as a stick to attempt to beat people back into the closet and take away basic rights, like being able to say the phrase, I have a husband at work. We talked about the fears relating to trans children and detransition panic. There's a lot more to say about that topic that we didn't have time for in this episode, but I've included some links to get you started if you want to learn more. So, if you have a friend or a family member who is experiencing one or all of these fears, but they're willing to hear more of your perspective, how the hell do you navigate that conversation? How can you keep yourself safe and be effective in that kind of tense conversation? So I know from personal experience that trying to reason people out of highly conspiratorial thought patterns is not an easy thing to do because like you can prepare and prepare and prepare for everything that you think that they're going to say and everything that you think that they believe. And then they'll hit you with something that is just so off the wall and nonsensical that you don't even know how to respond to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I feel like I say this so often, but this all goes back to our how to break someone out of a cult episode. You can't go into this conversation thinking that you're going to have a debate and defeat them with your superior logic and intellect. No, that's uh, only that only happens in like Kurt Cameron movies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I still have to. I need to make you watch a Kurt Cameron movie for the podcast. I have never seen one. I've just read the summary of a couple of them on Wikipedia. I will put a poll on our Instagram stories over which one you should be forced to watch. My vote is for Fireproof, but y'all let me know. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. No, but like, but what, did, what was it that Mark Twain said? He said it was never argue with stupid people because they will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like it's the same with conspiracy theorists. Like you can't, it, it's so hard to fight them because like, they're, like there's just so many levels to what they believe that are beyond what you can even comprehend. Yeah, and there's there's a difference if you're talking about people who have highly conspiratorial beliefs and thought patterns There is a clear difference between people who are willing to look at evidence that disproves their beliefs and people who are just not. And if somebody is going to discredit any evidence that you bring to them, you got (laughs) to love them from a distance. That that is, you are not going to be able, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how prepared you are. You are not going to have a positive impact on this person. You're just going to wear yourself out and wear your own mental health down. You also can't go in thinking that you're going to have a positive effect if you just blow off 
the other person's fears. I'm not saying that you have to see these fears that we've been talking about as valid because they aren't valid fears. A lot of them are honestly ridiculous and untrue and easily disproven. But you have to see these fears as real. Yeah. Uh, like the, they legitimately believe that they're protecting children. Yes. They, like we, we, we talked about this in, I think it was one of our Josh Duggar trial episodes where we talked about, we were talking about um, Northwest Arkansas and mm-hmm. like what kind of, what kind of place that is. Or it might have been the one where we were talking about Jim Bob Duggar running for Senate. And we were talking We've about had how- to talk about Josh Duggar more than we wanted to. <laughs> I, I hope I won't have to talk about him again for a while. Twelve and a half but, years. Like, but we were talking about him and we were talking about how basically, like, you know, conservatives say what you will about them, but they legitimately do think that they are protecting children with everything that they're doing. Yes. And, and it goes back to our abortion episode as well. I do not mm-hmm. trust for a single minute that Greg Abbott genuinely thinks that a recently implanted fetus is a human being. But your family member or friend who has been told that their whole life does. And you are not going to get anywhere with that conversation if you don't accept that they genuinely believe that. Even if you absolutely don't. I think it's more than fair to treat people who are leading this charge against LGBT rights as disingenuous. I do not believe that Tucker Carlson believes that California teachers are, quote, talking to seven-year-olds about their sex lives, end quote. I think that Tucker Carlson knows that this is a lie, and he is telling a lie on his entertainment show disguised as a news show for the ratings, for the fame, and for the money. We do not have to treat him and all of the hundreds of people like him with kid gloves and play the what-if-they're-sincere game. I see no value in that. However, your friend, your family member, who watches Tucker Carlson's entertainment program Disguises News Show, has been instilled with a very real fear. If you've left the IFB or another oppressive group, you know that fear. Remember, you used to feel that fear about maybe this topic or maybe abortion or another topic. If you're going to try to help somebody, you have to accept that they are feeling real fear. I also think, though, that if you have a friend or a family member who watches Tucker Carlson and takes him seriously, then there's going to be a lot of dominoes that have to fall before they get to like transgender acceptance. Like, I, I, I hate to say it, but that's going to that's going to be like a, a one of the last ones that's going to fall. So having been through this process myself and with people in my life, what I've seen is that a lot of those dominoes tend to fall internally. So a person could be externally walking the walk and talking the talk, posting homophobic on Facebook, but internally they may already be having doubts about this. So they're still behaving in a transphobic way, but in uh, privately they're thinking, I don't know, is it really that bad if somebody just wants to, you know, somebody was assigned male at birth and really just wants to live as a woman. Like, I think, I think that those, those changes can happen on the inside a long time before they show on the outside for some people. My husband went to see Jim Jeffries, the comedian, a few years ago. And oh, my he's husband, funny. huh? 
<laughs> I said, oh, he's funny. Yeah, my husband really liked this show. And and he keeps talking about, Jonathan keeps talking about this joke that Jim Jeffries told about his dad. And I'm going to tell it badly, but you should look him up. Telling It's apparently on his new um, comedy special. But Jim Jeffries' dad used to say something along the lines of like, well, I don't mind the gays as long as they don't involve me. And the joke was... Dad, they don't want to involve you. What are you expecting? Like two men in BDSM gear showing up at your door saying, well, we were just about to have gay sex, but first we wanted to see if you wanted to be involved. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think a lot of the people that consume content that I would find absolutely disgusting, like Tucker Carlson, have already come around to that point, like where Jim Jeffrey's dad was in their mind, where they like, well, I don't mind the gays as long as they don't involve me. And this kind of inflammatory content is reseeding their mind with the idea that gay people are actually dangerous, that they want to harm children, and that not minding them as long as they don't involve you is not an okay position to have. So that guy, like Jim Jeffrey's dad, like that character, if he were exposed to this kind of inflammatory content, he might think, oh, no, this is actually dangerous. I guess I should be worried about this. So mm. I don't write off people just because I think the content they consume or the D-list celebrities cosplaying as newscasters that they follow on social media are reprehensible and disgusting. Because what I've seen a lot of times is that they may already be coming around to, if not acceptance, then at least tolerance internally. And they they might just... <clears throat> They might just need someone in their other ear to balance out the content that they feel like they're supposed to be consuming. So this brings me to something that I want to talk about, because in my time, I've known quite a few people who are socially conservative. They're people, they're not going to come around on abortion, probably. Or if they do, they're the type that would say, well, I, I understand why it has to be legal, but nobody in my family would ever be allowed to have one because i think it's so wrong but you know maybe they've maybe they've come around on gay marriage mostly because they have been convinced to see gay relationships and families as exactly the same as hetero ones except both partners of the same gender you know what i'm saying when yeah. Where it's so but when it comes to like the transgender stuff the non-binary stuff Anything outside of pure two people monogamy, they are both like cisgendered people that are in a monogamous relationship. Like they're out. They they they're like no, that's too weird. It's too like blurry and, and like that's their. So I have I have a couple of thoughts about this. I think part of it goes back to a myth that we talked about briefly earlier in the episode that. Trans people are a relatively recent invention. There's this prevalent idea, like even in medical literature, you might see the concept that being gay or being lesbian is an established part of humanity, but being trans or non-binary and having gender confirmation surgery is a new thing. Do you know, like, have you ever looked into why that myth exists? No. Oh my no, gosh. No, why? Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> So the idea that being trans or non-binary is some kind of new thing is based in racism. Many, 
Yeah. No way. It's my dude. Oh my God. <laughs> Man. This many, is many cultures had some kind of established cultural concept of trans or non-binary people. But there but lots of ancient cultures and non-white cultures had an established cultural concept of more than two genders or acceptance of trans people or acceptance of non-binary people as a third gender. So like Two-Spirit, Hydra, Kawajasira, many, many more identities existed in places like Samoa, Pakistan, India, indigenous cultures in what is now the United States, Mexico, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Dozens, if not more, indigenous non-cisgender identities existed. When white people colonized those places, like white Europeans, they forced indigenous cultures. One of the things that they did as a part of colonization is they forced indigenous cultures to dress in their binary mode of dress. And if you think about white European culture at the time of colonialism, dress was incredibly binary. It was male and female, and that is it. So as a part of forcing people to dress in their binary dress codes, they forced them into binary gender presentation, and they attempted to eradicate these well-established trans and non-binary identities because they didn't fit with white European morals. So yeah, the idea that being trans or non-binary is new is racist. So on to the myth, though, about gender confirmation surgery being new, this one's going to blow your mind even more. Oh my God. I'm, I'm anxious to hear it. Tell me. <laughs> Did you know that gender confirmation surgery is actually older than several other very established surgical fields? No, but do go on. <laughs> so remember I said earlier that the field of sexology really took off from the late 1800s to the 1930s? Uh, did you wonder why the 1930s is such like a hard end date on that? Uh, w- w- where was sexology popular? Germany. Where was- oh, <laughs> but hold on. This is going to go. A dip- this isn't going the way you oh. think it's going. So oh, no. in Germany. No, this is a good. This is going. Well, not good. This is mm. going a different direction than you think it is. In Germany in the 1920s and 30s is when some of the first successful gender confirmation surgeries for trans women were completed. Uh, Gender confirmation for trans men was a little bit earlier, uh, but it wasn't quite analogous to the procedures that we have today. So some of these early gender confirmation surgeries were completed by Jewish Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld and his colleagues. As far as we know, Hirschfeld did the second successful gender confirmation surgery for a trans woman. He attempted probably the first uterine transplant for the same woman that he did the gender confirmation confirmation surgery for. Her name was Lily Elba Hirschfeld. And also Lily did was- Did it work? Yes. Well, the uterine transplant didn't. She died from uh, organ rejection. Okay. That makes sense. But the gender confirmation confirmation surgery was incredibly successful. By the way, Lily is- beautiful as well as being a trailblazer look up her picture it's just i don't know why she just inspires me a lot she's being gorgeous you know what we'll do we'll put her picture in the um in the instagram post we we should she's just you can you just look at her and you're like oh my god she's got a story but hirschfeld had a sexology clinic in germany and he had one of the largest collections in the entire world at the time of literature about 
LGBT people, including tons of anthropological information on the indigenous trans and non-binary identities that I just mentioned a minute ago, as well as anthropological information on cultures that accepted and integrated same-sex relationships into their culture. This is fascinating. So gender and sexuality studies were making massive progress at that time and that place. And several of, not all, but several of the top of the line leaders in the field were Jewish psychologists and doctors. Successful gender confirmation surgeries had been done. Again, some of the absolute leaders in that, the best of the best, were Jewish. And the Nazis raided Hirschfeld's library. They burned his entire library on the topic. They destroyed the medical records of the successful confirmation surgeries that he and his colleagues had done. They tore his life work to the ground. He escaped. They set the progress in the study of trans people back by literal decades. Man. Yep. The Nazis. Yep. Damn. So this massive setback, because we lost his entire library. He had the biggest collection in the world at the time of literal information about LGBT people and specifically trans people. So you're saying that the Nazis came through and they were uh, burning and destroying books that they thought had content that they found objectionable in it? Yes. That's really interesting. It is interesting. Um, But this like this set back trans healthcare and mainline medical philosophy about trans people so far. And this is why we have the myth, because people think like gender confirmation surgery is just a thing that we have like perfected in the last 20 years. And it's really not <laughs> like the the surgical method methods that are used now are older. And I wasn't able to find a complete list of surgeries that they're older than. But there are things that are considered standard of care that are way newer than GCS because of this tragedy, like the Nazis just like destroying Hirschfeld's life work. So I, that that is fascinating. Anyway, that's how we got that myth. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I do want to talk about the like because the talk about uh, a lot of the talk about gender being in the mainstream that is a fairly recent advent. So like a, as everybody knows, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, the epicenter of liberalism and the woke mob. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I went to a public high school. I graduated in 2011. I think. The first time I ever heard of somebody being non-binary was my senior year in high school. I think somebody who was in my creative writing class wrote a story and there was a non-binary character. And I don't know, I, I didn't really get it, but I was like, oh, whatever. That's some niche thing that I'm sure I'll never have to worry about again. Uh, <laughs> and... I was wrong. Uh, no, no. But like, I, I, like I didn't think about that. It was just like, oh, hmm. Huh. I didn't think about it again until probably like my sophomore or junior year at university when I heard there was somebody who I, I wasn't somebody who was like part of my friend group, but it was somebody who was like uh, friends with people I was friends with. I, I, I heard peripherally that they were non-binary and. This is probably like 2013. Um, 
and keep in mind that this is I was at like a private liberal arts school in Oregon. So it's going to be a topic of conversation there earlier than it is going to be a topic of conversation in the mainstream. And at that point, it was just sort of like tangential because it was so, it wasn't really somebody that I hung out with. So I could just kind of ignore it if I wanted to. I'm just like not worry about it because it didn't really concern me. And of course, since then, it's become like a regular thing. But like, I would be willing to bet that a lot of these more conservative people, especially if they're older, you know, they're like 50s, 60s, this kind of stuff doesn't filter through to them until like 2015, 16, 17, 18. And, you know, that's the first time they're hearing about this. And the first place that they're hearing about it from is from like Fox News or from like Ben Shapiro or somebody. And so their first impression of this is going to be that it's weird, it's gross, it's alien, it's this new thing that the liberals have brewing. They're cooking it up on their college campuses, preparing to unleash it on society. And 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 they're going to say, like, if you don't, like, I don't know, if you don't ask somebody's pronouns when you first meet them, then that automatically makes you a bigot and then you're going to lose your job. So this is exactly what I was talking about two weeks ago in our first episode of Pride Month. It's clear now that LGBT people have very much always existed. We talked about the public universal friend who was a a non-binary person in the 1700s, but it does seem new. And that's what I'm talking about. Like when we valid, like when we understand that somebody's fear reaction is real regardless of whether or not we see it as valid, it does seem new because it is just now being acceptable to talk about more publicly. I see a similarity in how we talk about pregnancy and how we talk about postpartum mood disorders. Even some older family members of mine kind of cringe when I say the phrase like, oh, when I was pregnant with Chuck, they will only reference it as like, oh, when you were expecting pregnant. It's not like it's a bad word, but it's definitely seen as kind of crude. And a few generations further back, like my older relatives who have now died uh, would never have used the word pregnant. There were euphemisms. So she's in the family way or postpartum mood disorders, like one in eight people who give birth experience PPA or PPD. And that's something that friends of mine who have been pregnant talk about extremely openly. But a few generations ago, it wasn't something that was discussed publicly. It was more of a private conversation. And further back than that, it wasn't recognized as anything other than, you know, the baby blues. Wait, so the word pregnant is considered (gasps) crude. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah, this is 100% a thing with like older generations. So to bring it back, like you were talking about to non-binary people, we all know that non-binary people have existed and have been accepted in many cultures for hundreds or thousands of years. But if you're an older conservative person, you don't know that. How would you know that? You're exposed to this new idea through a very negative and scary light, and you were spot on. Like, there's a fear that if you don't bend to this and if you don't aren't able to keep up with this, you're going to lose your job because you got somebody's pronouns wrong one time. Another thing that I notice is that cis people tend to be really attached to their gender, so it can be weird and scary to them that somebody might specifically feel like they don't have gender or that they are a mixture of genders or that they are a different gender than what they were assigned at birth. In the same way that it's just, and I I kind of intellectually understand this because it is so weird to me, 
that people some that many people are only attracted to one gender or one gender presentation. I literally cannot understand you straight people. I <laughs> I'm not trying. I know it's funny, but I'm not trying to be funny. I literally try to think about like what being just straight or gay would be like and I cannot comprehend it. I cannot get my brain around it. It just it blows my mind. It's so weird to me. And I think like in that same way, it can seem so mysterious to people who are cis, who feel very secure identifying in their assigned gender at birth that other people are not cis. And I think what's crucial to realize is that it is a real fear. If you're trying to help somebody deconstruct this, like I said earlier, you're going to get nowhere if you don't, if you're not willing to accept that it does feel scary to them. Now, some people are just bound and determined to be nasty and hateful and harmful to people who are different from them. And you're not likely to be able to help that person until they're ready to change. And you might get yourself in in an emotionally really unsafe situation if you try to force change on somebody who is just bound and determined to be nasty. But a lot of other people, they have this fear instilled in them. They feel like everything is changing too quickly, that they can't keep up, and that the liberals are going to indoctrinate their children and put them in jail for expressing a different opinion. And they deal with that by taking a hard right turn into that hateful rhetoric. That can be taken apart, but you're going to have to be able to bite your tongue and understand that it is actually scary for them. So I think there's also a... You know how in like the 90s and the 2000s, it was like sort of, it was seen as racist to even talk about race. You know what I'm saying? Like you ever watch TV shows from like the 90s or like the early 2000s and some character will be like, oh, um, I'm dating a new, I'm dating the, I have a new girlfriend. She's black. And the guy is like, huh? I I didn't notice. I guess I don't see that. So you know what I'm right, saying? Like the I don't see color ideology was very yeah. much like the hip thing until people realized that that's actually not ideal. Yeah, but th- that was like the thing in like the 90s or the the 2000s. There's a lot of people that I I feel like they have the same sort of attitude towards this thing, towards towards gender and towards sexuality and stuff. Right. And uh, if you're if you're talking about like accepted terminology changes at the time, I think the correct thing, like people thought the correct thing to say, like the best way to be respectful was to refer to black people as African-American. And now like people of color have asked us to use black. That is the generally accepted term. We capitalize the B when writing. That's what is in the APA style guide now. That is what is the correct term now like that has changed like there's sort of that mentality though with a lot of these people that they they do not like discussing something that's like like a slightly uncomfortable topic so it's going to be the same with gender like and it's like all new terminology to them and it's easier for them to just say it if my choice is between constantly figuring out what the right terminology is this week versus last week or just not bothering with any of it, then I'll just keep using the language that I've been using for 45 years. I'm not changing now. If people don't like it, then, you know, that's their problem. Right. And I want to speak to that, like, this week versus last week, because I think once we, once you get a little more into the swing of things, you understand that the terminology literally usually does not change on a weekly basis. <laughs> um, but it can, but I think we have to accept that it feels that way. 
especially for older people. So being afraid of saying the wrong thing, that is absolutely something that I can give advice on. I think this fear comes further down the line than the fears that we talked about in the first half of the episode. So someone has accepted that they're willing to learn, willing to possibly change some of their beliefs. We've debunked some of the fears that we talked about earlier, but their next objection or like the next barrier to them learning is that they're afraid of saying the wrong thing or they're afraid that they can't keep up with the terminology. My personal opinion is that this is a barrier that has been thrown in their path by right-wing thought leaders. I think this is another fear that has been instilled to prevent people from defecting over to the other side. Well, oh, you're never going to be able to keep up with the, t- the, with the terminology. It's better not to even try. Um, and I personally, I think it's um, honestly kind of ageist and insulting to uh, older people who want to be good allies because what you're telling people is you are too old to learn new terminology. And that's not correct. I personally think that's um, ageist and insulting. So another thing that I see is people who are on a base level willing to learn and grow in their treatment of LGBT people, but they have they feel that they would be required to know like the difference between, I don't know, genderqueer and gender fluid and gender nonconforming and have to understand the nuance of those identities and be able to recognize their pride flags on site. And they've like they feel like they're going to be judged or outcast if they don't enter the ally scene with it all figured out to begin with. I mean, I'm going to be honest, man. I don't know the difference between those. Like, I'm sure <laughs> that somebody's told me what the what like the differences are, and I'm sure that I've read it somewhere. But I think I just filled that part of my brain up with F1 trivia. And well, my point is that that's really okay because if someone says to you. I'm genderqueer and my pronouns are they, them. You're just gonna use their pronouns. And yeah, then if that's, you, that's all I need to know. And then if that's you mess something up, like, like, unless this person is your, like, romantic partner or an extremely close friend, you don't have to understand the nuance of their identity and be able to quote it back to them in order to be a good ally. And if you mess something up and they correct you, you're just gonna, like, say sorry and move on. And, like, do it right the next time, right? Yeah, no, I, like I've, I've I've not had a, a, a problem with pronouns. Um, I don't think the like the only time I've ever had issues with it was somebody told me that there's or it's not theirs. It was something with an X, and I don't remember what oh, it was. Yeah, 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 Z pronouns probably. Yeah, and okay, but if somebody, but if somebody who is a major part of your life comes out and says that Z is going to use Z pronouns now, you're maybe going to take the time to ask Z questions and learn more and make sure that you're speaking about them correctly, right? Yes. And okay, I'm going to that- be honest. I had to Google the conjugation for Z pronouns for that bit. This is okay. Is it Z or is it she? It's like Z. Chinese. No, it's no, it's Z. Um, so Z E and X E pronouns are conjugated differently, but generally pronounced the same, at least in my experience. Wait, so there's multiple pronouns that are spelled differently, pr- but pronounced. Yeah, because it's it's just a, it's just a stylistic choice. 
I like uh, I am not super fluent with Z pronouns because I don't know anybody who uses them. So I don't know it off the top of my head. This is like a person I met one time. Right. Like at at a at a thing and I was just like, okay. I, like I was playing like a showcase and this was another musician and it, I'm just, like, just like I don't know how to But I know you and I know that if somebody who you do interact with on a regular basis used a neo pronoun that you weren't familiar with, you would take the time to learn it. Yeah. I'd I'd put I'd put in the effort. Like there's other ones too. I just can't remember them. Um what they so, are, but I know that they exist. So the good thing about neo pronouns, neo pronouns <laughs> can be I mean, I'm hearing like a tiny bit of of fear in your voice that like you don't know how to use all of the different neo pronouns. The I good- don't even know what they are, man. Like I, I So the good thing about them is that they almost all follow the same conjugation that's very familiar to English speakers who are fluent with he, her, and they pronouns, he, she, and they pronouns. So once you learn one set of neo-pronouns fluently, it's a lot easier to pick up the other sets when needed. The only ones I'm really fluent in are V pronouns and fair pronouns, because those are sets of pronouns that correspond to actual humans that I know. Do these neo-pronouns, is there like a specific identity that uses one set of neo-pronouns and then a different one that uses a different set of neo- No, these are are sets that might be most commonly used by non-binary people, um, but they can also be used by cis people who don't want to be identified with gendered pronouns. This is like how I use both she and they pronouns because I don't care if people identify me as a feminine person, but I also don't care if people identify me in a gender in a genderless way because I feel like either one is fine. The fact that you had to Google the Z pronouns, though, that I, I guess that does make me feel a little bit like vindicated in my inability to remember because <laughs> like you, you're like you, you like are are. are uh, I'm the designated uh, person who knows about this stuff for yeah. a lot of people in my life. Yeah, and and you had to Google it. Okay, so, I'm also okay. the person who understands crypto. Why do I never get credit for that? <laughs> because you don't spend a lot of time explaining crypto to people. I could. It's just nobody asks me. All anybody wants to ask me about is pronouns. <laughs> nobody ever wants anybody to explain to them how crypto works. Okay, like nobody has ever. We should do a Patreon episode where I uh, get drunk and explain crypto. We could just like dress you up in like a backwards baseball cap, dress you up as like a frat dude and take you to like a a party (laughs) at PSU. Then you can explain crypto to as many people as you want and (laughs) they would just like have to listen to you. Um, We'll draw on like a fake, uh, like a chin strap beard. This this sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. You said that you feel like it makes you feel validated that you have a hard time remembering all the neo pronouns because I had to Google a set of neo pronouns. Yeah. Um, here's the mm-hmm. thing. You can use this to your advantage if you're talking to somebody who's nervous about neo pronouns or who doesn't get neo pronouns. Tell this person that you're talking to. That lots of allies, lots of LGBT people themselves don't know how to use every single neo pronoun set. Tell this person that your favorite super liberal podcast host had to Google it. You tell them to learn to use they them fluently because that is that is a thing that people need to know. That's the one that you see. That's the one that like the other ones are niche. 
It's the most common non-binary pronoun set. Teach them to use they, them fluently, and don't worry about neo-pronouns right this minute unless somebody in their life currently uses a certain neo-pronoun set. Teach this person that you're talking to to use someone's name instead of their pronouns if they're still practicing and they're really, really struggling and they're really afraid that they're going to mess it up. And teach them how to react when they do mess it up by quickly correcting themselves and moving on calmly. Tell this person that they don't have to have it all figured out to be a good ally. Tell them that there aren't pop quizzes on which pride flag is which. Reassure them that they can just focus on the terminology that pertains to the people that they interact with the most and offer to help them learn the stuff that they do need to know. And I guess that's my call to action too for this episode because somebody who is trans or non-binary might have a lot on their emotional plate. They probably get misgendered, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. They might have trouble convincing people to use their correct pronouns, which is not something that anybody should go through. That's tough. They might have non-affirming family who insist on calling them the wrong name and pronouns, and that sucks. Like, that's cruel. This, it's not fair to ask every trans person to always be perfectly gracious and poised in the face of micro and macro aggressions that they face every single day and always be available to answer any question and explain their pronouns and always be perfectly gracious and poised about this whole thing. It's great when trans people are able to answer honest questions about their identity or their pronouns. I think that's an awesome educational tool when people have the space and the emotional safety for that. Uh, I seriously applaud any trans person who is able to graciously answer questions. I personally know a lot of people who have been deconstructing on this topic who have been immensely helped. Uh, Like There was a a Facebook thing that was going around, and I I usually see it pop up on a couple friends' walls during Pride Month. It's like a list of questions And like a person who is trans or a person who is non-binary will post this to their Facebook wall and say, hey, anything on this list of questions, feel free to ask me. And it'll have questions about like their transition process or like when they realized they were trans or what it feels like for them or what their pronouns are. And it's like a, a way of opening up the conversation. I love that. Again, I applaud anybody who is trans that is able to do that safely. But this is also, this is a great place that allies can step in and be supportive of LGBT people and less marginalized LGBT people like myself, people who are not in danger because of their gender or sexual identity, people who are secure in that identity and are accepted by the people around them. This is a great place for us to step in. I have several people in my life who depend on me to help them keep up with changing terminology, to teach them pronoun sets that they're not familiar with, to correct them if they say something that's maybe not ideal and teach them how to say it better the next time. I have websites for pronoun practice. I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I knew someone who was really struggling with using the singular they pronoun for a person in their life. And they really wanted to get it right. And they were just having a tough time making it habit. 
So I wrote them a bunch of sentences using they, them pronouns with the name of their person who had recently come out as non-binary in the sentences. And then I practiced those sentences with the person who was struggling. And that's This is the kind of, of practical support that allies and less marginalized LGBT people can provide. Did you uh, do sentence diagramming? <laughs> <laughs> No, Gavi, I did not diagram the sentences, but the skills that I learned in sentence diagramming helped me to understand the objective and subjective pronoun cases. <laughs> you tell me what a reflexive pronoun is. I don't know what the f*** that is. No, uh, I, I'll tell you something, Sadie. I, I tried learning um, German in college. Um, because it was a music major, I was a voice major and you had to take French and you had to take German. Mm. I'd, had, I'd had French in high school, so I tried to take German in college. And I was doing fine up until we got to whatever a case is. I still don't know what a case is. If um, you had learned to diagram sentences, you would have learned that. Yeah, and it's not they're important. not They're not actually related, but they're usually like, like that is, the, if you're going to diagram sentences, your your curriculum is also going to teach you about pronoun cases and no, conjugations. See, they tried to get us the diagrams, but they, they didn't teach us about cases. Did you have to do verb tense? Did you have to like stand in lines with your class and say, go, went, go, have gone, sleep, slept, like that? Sleeping. Standing. No. The f kind of Von Trapp family school did you go to? <laughs> you know exactly what kind of school I went to. It's verb conjugation. They had to do that in Little House on the Prairie. That's probably where they got it from they probably saw it on how did TV you learn like how did you learn irregular verbs by reading books it's amazing to me that you can use irregular verbs consistently without learning conjugations why that's how you learn conjugation kids pick that up from reading books and from having conversation you can get it from the context of the conversation i mean maybe we had to like have quizzes on it like in in elementary school, but we didn't have to like stand up in front of the class and and recite. That's, that like that's the type of thing that you only do if your school is like hella into aesthetic purposes rather than actually teaching anything. School is like a vibe, you know, but like a very specific weird like. This is this is off the cuff, but I wonder if this contributes to this stereotype that older people are going to have more trouble learning new pronoun sets that they don't usually use. You know, that actually might have something to do with it. Because, because if I, it was, because yeah. this is like an older educational method. And if it was, if verb conjugation was drilled into you, maybe that's why there's a stereotype. Because honestly, I know plenty of people at all ages that work to learn new pronouns that they're not familiar with and do a great job. So I wonder if maybe this contributes to that stereotype. You know, I, I have heard people say the thing where they're just like, they're like, yeah, whatever this non-binary stuff, I think it's fine or whatever. But it's just like learning to, it doesn't make sense, a sen sense in the sentence. Like I, you hear people say that. Like, as I like wonder if that's because not. sentence structure was so much more drilled into people who were taught using older educational methods, both people who are older in age and people like me who were raised with curriculum that was idealizing the like 1800s through the 1950s. Oh, for, I mean, and for a lot of people, it's not going to really become an issue for them until somebody in their life says I'm non-binary or somebody in their life, like it comes out as trans and transitions. And until it affects like somebody that they already know, um, they're, they're not going to get it and they're not going to like 
have to worry about it, I feel like, you know? That's true. I I understand, though, that it it can be so much for the person who did transition to also be the person who answers every question and explains things and works mm-hmm. on pronouns. And I think if you can help out as an ally to that person, if it's safe for you to do so, if you have the space to do so, I really suggest that you do. Um as far as helping people understand trans people, I found one very basic strategy that works on people that really are ready to learn. Gavi, do you remember the questions that Sam sent you for Pride last year? Like, how did you know you were straight? Or what did your parents think when you came out as straight? Sam, I remember Sam because of name as pronouns. Yes, and because Sam sent you an amazing list of questions. It's a great um, list of questions. It was really good. So I knew somebody who was really struggling with understanding, like, this person really wanted to accept trans people, but they felt like they were hung up on why trans people transition. It it was like, why can't, like, his objection was like, why can't somebody just be a very feminine man, why does this person need to be a trans woman? Like, why do they need to be seen societally as a woman, not just a man who's really feminine? And I finally just went around in circles and I finally just asked him, well, how do you know you're a man? And why is it important to you that society sees you as a man? Why does that matter? If somebody called you a woman, would you correct them? And that that kind of line of questioning really helped get through to him. And which surprised me a little, but that that seems like such a basic strategy. But when somebody is in that space of listening and ready to learn, it really can help. It's just sometimes it's the simplest things, and it's and it's the right timing because it and, and it's and it's situational awareness. Because if you ask somebody that who is not ready to learn, it's going to lead to frustration. But the, but I think the whole point of this episode is like there are people who are ready to learn and use your discernment and fig- try to figure out which which is which. I think a lot of people listening to this show they've had the experience of so you know somebody you know. Um, like say me some maybe it's a friend, maybe it's an acquaintance, somebody who you run in the same circles. You see somebody posting messy on Facebook and they're saying, I'm so depressed, I feel like my life has no meaning, I'm totally lost, and I really need support um for weeks and weeks and weeks or months or whatever. You you see somebody posting this and you're just like, mm, I'm not really close with this person. I don't feel like it's it's right for me, but you see other people are are responding and like talking to this person so you're like okay they've got support from somebody i'm not the right person for that but like you see that and then they kind of like vanish from social media for a couple months maybe they'll surface and they'll share a meme that's like from an anti-capitalism page and then maybe like six months later out of the blue they pop up with a different first name and it's a post that says, hi, I go by Luna now. I'm trans feminine. I use she, they pronouns and I'm starting HRT next week. And then over the next year, you know, she's only posting like happy pics in like sundresses with a supportive partner. Like, you know what I mean? You've uh, you- Yeah, I'm I'm counting how many times I've seen this. Yeah, like, I don't know. I've, I've probably seen that like a dozen times. It makes me so happy. Like, like it's it's gotten to the point where you if you see somebody doing like the depression posting thing on Facebook and then you see a couple anti-capitalism memes pop up you're like oh I know where this is going <laughs> 
and you just like, you're just behind the scenes like you can do it i believe in yeah, you I, I believe in you i don't know you that well but i i support you and i believe in you um no but like if, if you see this like happen over and over and over if you see this enough times you have to come to the conclusion that this thing is legitimate right like th- th- this is real that these people aren't just doing this for attention or they're not doing it for like validation they're doing this so that they can feel like they exist in a way that makes sense yeah and and it's you know it's kind of it's kind of me me you know we don't want to suggest that people always take the same path to transition but i i love the the take that like look how many people are saying to you like no this is the only way that i can feel safe in my own body this is the way that i can interact with the world and truly be myself and that you're listening to each person who is coming out and saying that and to the group of people that is coming out and saying that. But another thing that, you know, the, the more, the, the more pessimistic side of that that I would bring up is that trans people are often rejected by their own family. They are often unsafe in public. They may have a harder time finding romantic partners. They may not be able to have children after transition if that was something that they wanted to do. And they have to deal with a metric ton of unsolicited hatred from people around them, strangers in public, and commenters on the internet. And on top of that, they may have to pay out of pocket for transition-related health care. I've known trans people who worked second and third jobs to save money for transition. Of course, we want all of this to go away, like right now, but that's the way things are right now. So when I talk to people that are questioning whether trans people are legitimate or are just following a trend or just looking for attention, I ask them if they would be willing to go through all of that for a trend or attention. I ask them what it would take for them to be willing to walk through that gauntlet of an experience. And that does tend to help people understand that this is absolutely a life and death issue and it does tend to help them be more supportive of the trans people in their lives. I think also a lot of it has to be, I think they think that as soon as you come out as trans, then everybody who's liberal just rallies around you and turns you into like a hero and lets you live in a palace or something. My take on that is that as being trans is seen more and more as a variation of normal, as like, hey, this is just a thing that some people are, that that stereotype can really can can go away really quickly and i think that also knowing actual trans people will dispel that pretty quickly as well that's true if you don't know any in real life then you're probably right then you just look at like a, a few celebrities and you, you you're get all this... like caitlin jenner and <laughs> oh god don't bring up her name on my god honoring podcast <laughs> To be clear, I support Caitlyn Jenner in her gender identity. It's everything else about her that I cannot stand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I like a a lot of these people have been like they've been told their whole lives that liberals want to emasculate the culture. They don't want men to be men anymore. That's what the feminists want. That's what the liberals want. Um, so it's it's like not a stretch for them to think the liberals are going to brainwash the boys and get them to like chop off their penis. That's- so this I this is like a this is a thing that goes around. I've seen this kind of rhetoric. My general response to that is to remind people uh, how small of a percentage of the population is trans and and also remind them that there are plenty of babies being born. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. You don't need to make other people like why why is it all about making other forcing other people to reproduce? I don't know. It's like a breeding fetish. Well, yeah. so we're back to Jim Bob Duggar. Yeah, okay. What's 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 weirder, the breeding fetish or the chop your penis off TikTok challenge? The because <laughs> I mean that's that's literally what they think it is. They think it's like the the the, the chop your penis off TikTok challenge. Uh, I I mean, is that a TikTok challenge that you're going to take part in? No. Is there any amount of social pressure or like promises of fame and fortune that could make you take part in this TikTok challenge? No. One of the things, like we, we were saying, we're saying that that queer people pop up in like. I mean, they they exist in every community, like in all of these communities historically, you know, and a lot of them got really destroyed by, you know, getting taken over. So it's not like it's not like an issue like racism where you don't really have to worry about having conversations about racism if you live in a town that's like 93 percent white. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't move away from queer people. They're going to be a certain percentage of humanity across the board no matter where you live so you can only move to a place where they're not accepted and they have to live in hiding and i guess that's your choice if you really want to make that choice if you're really dead set against this stuff but it's not great that that's not a great choice i i just i really believe that i know that there are hateful and awful people in the world that are never going to listen, that are never going to change. But from my own experience and from my relentless optimism, I I truly believe that there are people who are open to change. And uh, I, I really, I can't quit believing in people's ability to change. So if I could bring it all down to this, if I could bring it all down to one thing, I hope that this episode has been helpful in understanding where these fears come from and how we got to the point that we are at with the libel that is being spread about LGBT people and specifically trans people in the media. I hope I've been able to set you on a good path when you do talk with people who have had these very real fears instilled in them by either the media they consume or the people that they listen to. I hope this knowledge is useful. While you're out there being a voice for the LGBT community. And I hope this empowers you to do what you can where you can. That was very well put. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. I guess we forgot to say this at the top of the episode, but uh, with any of the Pride Month themed merch that we have for sale, uh, the profits that we make from the sale of that merchandise is going to... Where is it going? Do you want to... Sadie, do you want to tell the people about the organization that we're fundraising for? So 100% of the profits of Pride merch sold during the month of June will be going to this organization. Uh, The organization is Point of Pride. They provide access to transition-related healthcare to trans people. I chose, I picked the organization that we donated to, that we're going to donate to this year, uh, I chose them because they do both micro grants and very large grants. So they have a uh, large yearly grants that fully cover the cost of somebody's gender confirmation surgery. But they also have micro grants that go throughout the year to help trans people access HRT through an online app that is able to prescribe in states where access to HRT is difficult. 
Uh, they also provide free binders and shapewear to trans people year round. Uh, access to transition is, I think it's obvious that this is a lifesaver mental health wise for trans people who want to live their authentic lives in a happy way, in a way that they are happy with. But this can also be a more literal lifesaver in places where it's not safe to get clocked as a trans person. This can help people feel more safe doing their daily activities as well. So I I love this organization because I like the mix of larger and smaller financial grants that they're able to give. And I liked the mix of direct action and activism that they do. So uh, again, 100% of our Pride Month merch sale or our Pride-related merch sales for the month of June will go to this organization. All right. And you can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Um, Sadie, do you want to plug your socials? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you so much. You guys have a great day. Happy Pride, everybody. Bye bye. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.